severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job. Hello, I am Jamie McKinley and welcome to episode 28 of Just Get A Real Job, the podcast where we speak to emerging creatives and creatives alike from across the creative industries. I said the word creative quite a lot there, didn't I? Anyway, um, we're recording this week's intro at quarter to ten the day before the episode comes out on the Monday. So, yeah, this is pretty much as close to live as you're ever going to get on an intro. I've been working today and the last few days, in fact, so I just not had the chance to do the intro yet. So, very, very sorry, Elliot, for sending the intro this late. Massive shout out to Elliot, who's been editing the podcast. We couldn't make this podcast without Elliot, and he puts a great shift in every week. So... Honestly, very, very grateful for that. But anyway, we have another very good episode lined up for you guys today. And on this week's episode, I had the chance to sit down and chat to Lance Nielsen, who is a very, very experienced screenwriter, a very experienced playwright. He's a director, he's an author, he's got books out at the moment. Lance has been working in the industry for a long time, and he's, in fact, he's an award-winning writer. He's won awards and stuff, and directed and written feature films, including his film The Journey. And yeah, it's always good on this podcast, especially where a lot of our listeners are emerging creatives or like myself very much at the start of their career in the creative industries it's always good to speak to people who have been at it for a long time and and hear their wisdom and advice but before we dive into this week's conversation with Lance I just wanted to take a quick moment to remind everyone that if you are enjoying the podcast there are quite a few things you can do to help us grow and one of the main one of them is word of mouth so spread the word tell friends and fans listen shares on social media that goes a long long way in helping us get new listeners another thing you can do which we really really appreciate is by leaving us a five star on apple Podcasts. so if you're listening on apple and you can leave us a five star review that goes a hell of a long way in helping us be seen and we very much appreciate it and of course another thing you can do if you can afford it and i'm aware it's a very very difficult time for people so we appreciate that not everyone has a lot of money but if you can afford to donate and you're enjoying the podcast please consider donating to our patreon page and there is a link to that in the show notes literally even if you can afford to donate a pound we very much appreciate it but anyway speaking of uh, difficult financial times as well i saw this week that somewhere that is very very special place in my heart is just launched a crowdfunder and that is actually firewater which is an amazing club and venue in glasgow and i have very very fond memories of of going to firewater for nights out when i'd visit friends in Glasgow are seeing you know it's a venue as well so they have gigs there and it's a restaurant and bar as well and yeah Firewater is a really great club and I'd be sad to see it go and I I was very much looking forward to when restrictions are eased going through to Glasgow for a, a nostalgic night out there so hopefully they can raise enough money to survive I know there's a lot of places in the pandemic that have been struggling and we can't save them all and we can't you know there's so many places to plug but just I just wanted to give Firewater a shout out because yeah it holds a particular place in uh, my heart and uh, yeah there's a link to their crowdfunder in the show notes as well but lastly before I get on to this week's episode usually at the start of the podcast I will share a poem of my own a poem of someone else or a bad review of a great film but this week I just wanted to share a quick quote one of my heroes Billy Conley and this quote puts a smile on my face every time I hear it and I hope it puts a smile on your face too and it is never trust a man who when left alone with a tea cosy doesn't try it on I just think that's just fantastic Billy is just an absolute legend but anyway without much further ado it's time for this week's episode of Just Get A Real Job with writer and director Lance Nielsen I hope you guys enjoy (laughs) 
Hi, Lance. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Jamie. I'm very uh, chuffed to be here. Thanks for asking me. No, it's great to have someone like yourself on. I was just saying to you before we started the interview, obviously our podcast is aimed mainly at emerging creatives, but it's really good to have somebody like you who's you know done so much and has been at it for a long time. I think you're going to have some really great insights for our listeners. Someone old. <laughs> That's not at all. Right. <laughs> Oldish. Getting, getting, getting on a bit. Someone getting on a bit um, who's been around a bit. Yeah. yeah I, well, hopefully. I mean, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I yeah. certainly, I like giving advice to younger people in, in the industry, whether that's actors or writers or d- directors. So more than happy to, to try and tick some boxes for you. Far right. away. Right. So, Lance, you are a writer mainly, but you're also a director and, you know, you're a playwright and a screenwriter. So you, you do a lot of writing and you're an author as well, because I know you've got a book out. So you've done a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, actually, my second book just came out two days ago. It's because I'm doing a series. It's the sequel to this one, mm-hmm. Diamonds in the Sky. That's the first of what will be six books. And it's completely formatted and written in a style that's designed to be accessible to a really wide readership. It's set now. It's it's not a heavy sci-fi series set in a faraway universe. And it's it's about what happens to eight characters all over the world, each from a different culture, each from a different class and ethnicity and what happens to them in the first 72 hours of 200 alien ships arriving on the earth and no one can get in them and no one comes out of them and the second book which is called the orphans of babylon which you can find the cover for on my facebook profile it's on diamonds in the sky book series.com is the website that's just come out on kindle and the paperback will be out in about a week i think Right. Well, we'll link all this stuff in the show notes the of the podcast about so people can go and find this stuff. So that's great. But Lance, we sort of like to start the podcast yeah. by asking all our guests, what is your earliest creative memory? So do you remember as like a kid, do you have any like inkling of the when you first sort of really got into being creative and wanted to sort of be a writer? Okay, well, just being creative generally, I would say there are definitely two key things that were responsible for that. One was the fact that my parents were big fans of James Bond mm-hmm. and so um, when I watched the Bond films and the first Bond film they took me to see was um, Roger Moore's The Spy Who Loved Me which is a terrific movie great film I would get back from the cinema or, or I would run up to my room after watching the, the the Bond film at the bank holiday weekend or whatever and I'd recreate the sets <laughs> with my Lego I had a massive Lego collection because my father was Danish and Lego's a Danish invention yeah. And I'd recreate the sets and I'd recreate the scenes. And then I was directing the, recreating the scenes with either my airfix soldiers or my Lego men. So that was kind of how I started being creative. It was obvious I was going to go into that industry, I think. In terms of writing, uh, I used to write sort of novels in exercise books. I'd nick exercise books from school and I'd scribble sort of fantasy novels in the books and then just write pages and pages and pages of fantasy type novels. And uh, but but when I actually decided to write, when I wrote the Diamonds series, it was it was very much my priority from from day one that that the book should be very grounded and that the characters should feel very real real and relatable. So I I. I didn't really set out to write a sci-fi show. I, I set out to write a show about dysfunctional human characters who go on this incredible journey. Yeah, so those those would be the sort of two starting acorns. And I guess you know I'm I'm of the generation that saw Star Wars at the cinema. Wow, and there was yeah. the big long queues in the in that summer of '77. 
and everybody from our school went to see it for their birthday. So if you you, you were lucky, you got to go like about eight times in six weeks, which I did. <laughs> and that was a big influence. I remember trying to build an X-Wing with my Lego when I got back and being frustrated. I didn't quite have the right pieces because, of course, there was no Star Wars Lego back then. Um, you had Lego Space, which came out a bit later. Yeah, so those would be the creative acorns of my youth that sort of doomed my future <laughs> yeah <laughs> to where i am now if you like oh well, that's great no i like the lego stuff i i mean we were i was lucky enough as a, as a kid to have star wars lego and i loved it i loved it well uh, lance another question we ask and this is interesting because you mentioned your dad is danish but like, mm. we sort of ask our listeners how where they're from has sort of had an influence on your creativity so do you sort of mention to me when we started speaking about doing the podcast that you sort of identify as being british and also danish as well is that correct we're i'm definitely a european 100% first and foremost. I think I probably identify with being Danish more than English. But the the, the Danish influences was always very, very much in the heart of our house. Um, my father made Christmases a very, very special time. We had Danish Christmas decorations, which I have still got. And it was very much a Danish Christmas, Danish food, this kind of thing. And there were various other just little Danish traditions that we kept going and my dad would, would, would always say Saudagot, good night in, in Danish and this kind of thing. I miss him terribly. He's a really lovely man. And my mum was a ballet dancer and my dad was a graphic designer, so I was never going to become an accountant, you know. Yeah, you had the creative influence around you. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Well, thank you for that. Open up about that. Well, I'm interested in this. So you were you grew up in London, right? Just to quickly check, you, that's where you grew up. Yeah, I, was, um, I wasn't born in, in London, but that's a I was adopted. It's mm-hmm. a big, complicated story that I won't bore you with. That's okay. But adopted by a Danish father, English mother. Brought up in sunny Surbiton, the same place where The Good Life was uh, set. The TV show The Good Life, you'll be too young yeah. to remember that. And a sort of little area called Berryland, which is very sort of middle-class uh, suburbia. And then my dad lost his job. And instead of going to the posh school, I had to go to the state school where all the, all the tough kids went. And actually, from a writing perspective later, that was really good for me. Yeah. And also the sudden change in our family from going from a family that was doing okay and, and you know, my dad had a really well-paid job to suddenly, you know, at the age of 13, 12, 13, we were suddenly plunged into into real problems where we our family were hand to mouth my mother had to go back to work she had to get two part-time jobs my dad became a freelance graphic designer but the te- technology had kind of moved on and he felt very lost and it was it was that was a very difficult time and suddenly you know there was no money for birthday and christmas presents and you know we were all kind of well i went out and got paper round and all this sort of thing you know so the dynamics at home suddenly went from being one thing to another which was very interesting when you look back on it now to experience that at the age I I was at you know we we, my dad was given a choice of moving our family up to Yorkshire which is where his company was consolidating or taking a I think a redundancy and my mum's parents were still alive at the time so she was adamant she didn't want to move to Yorkshire and um, that was it. So we sort of social demographic in our family shifted at a very uh, interesting time. Uh, definitely must have had an effect on your work and stuff, which is interesting. But the sort of next question was just, well, that's why I was asking where you're from, is it? So we like to ask everyone, do you have a favourite word or phrase from where you're from? I've given that some thought when I came on. I'll tell you what the, the, the word I'm using most at the moment is, but I, I honestly can't think of a word that's particular 
okay, I can, I guess. There's an, there was, okay, there was an area that we used to hang out as kids. We used to build camps and we used to build little forts and all this kind of thing yeah. when we had our various rival gangs and whatnot. And that area was called the Hogs Mill. And there, there was a documentary made on it recently, an award-winning documentary, because it's become this big nature reserve now and they've really put some money into it and built it all nicely. And I dare say all of our secret pirate camps have been <laughs> long since discovered and this, this market <laughs> The, the, the word I seem to be using a lot lately is discombobulated. That's a good word. Yeah, because uh, I found the whole process of lockdown really good for me creatively, which we'll come on to yeah, yeah. momentarily. But in, in other ways, it's been really discombobulating. It's impacted my health a little bit, which has not been good. And, you know, I'm really struggling. I won't lie. I won't, won't lie to say I'm, I'm really struggling with a few things. But I think any, everybody is. Yeah, I don't think there's any shame in uh, admitting that we're all not at all going through a really tough time, and it's all very relative, you know, whether you were a homeowner or whether you're a renter. And I, I also think that a lot more could have been done for people at the lower end of the scale. And I think we're going to have we're going to see a very big rise in crime at the back end of this because more people will be turning to crime because they won't have any choice because they won't have any money, and there will be a lot of people in debt. There will be a huge increase in homelessness. So. I'm feeling quite discombobulated about all these things. So that's a word that I think that's a very, very good word for the last year. It's a, in fact, I think it perfectly summarizes yeah. the last year, to be honest. I think we can yeah, all relate to yeah. that. So I appreciate um, how open you were being as well about you, how you're feeling and stuff. I think it is important for people to talk about that. And I think it's important for listeners to hear that because I think we can all relate. So thank you for that. Yeah, I had some. I had a really bad 2019. So I actually wrote a blog. If you go onto my Diamonds in the Sky website and read my blogs, the last one I did is my top 10 favourite character actors. But if you go back a bit further, there's a blog about why 2020 was better for me than 2019. And I had a really bad 2019. I had a real struggle with my mental health and uh, I was all over the place. I lost a really good friend who died from cancer. It was very out of the blue because he kept it to himself. And he was a really big influence on my life. And, and that, 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 that really hit me. So 2019 was just this horrendous year. So when we were going into 2020, it was like, well, it can't be any worse. Can't be any worse than 2019. But it actually, 2020 was all right in, 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 in a lot of ways. 2020 was really good for me. In other ways, no, but, you know, I'm going to be thankful for the good things and yeah. try and deal with the rest as they come. Definitely. I'm very sorry to hear about your 2019. And we'll, we'll come on to your 2020 soon because I've got some, you've got some really good, cool things for us to discuss then. But I sure. just wanted to wonder if we could go back a little bit further and we could go to your sort of education. I went to Hollyfield Secondary School, which, funny story, uh, a director I'm working with at the minute who's optioned one of my scripts called Fallen Eagle, and if it happens, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, it's been optioned, but there's no money yet. But if it happens, Adam, the director, he was in Hollyfield School a decade behind me. Oh, wow. So that was a really weird coincidence. And he's this incredible director because he's, his eye, he's got this weird disease in his eyes. He hasn't completely lost his eyesight, but it's, it's very minimal. And so directing is a really challenging job. It's, it's, I think it's more challenging than writing. Mm. which is one of the reasons why I like it so much. So, you know, I think about the challenges I've had on set when I've directed something, and I think about the challenges Adam must have. Take my hat off to the guy. I mean, respect, you know. Very impressive. He's, he's directing where, and he can't see or, or, 
almost can't see. So yeah, I went to Hollyfield and then I went to Epsom School of Art and Design. Yeah, that was the one I was trying to now, work there when I was looking at my notes. That was the one I was trying to... Well, it's now Farnham, it's now Farnham University. It's all changed. I mean, because, mate, we're going back a long time here. That's all changed. I did an audio-visual design degree and did some other things as well. But the problem is, I... I, I it's on my Wikipedia page, so you'll know about it. That happened when I had this blood clot in my brain and actually my thumb was as, as black as my phone and I had these two massive blood clots in my brain and one of them was really big it was the size of a golf ball and it was it was like on the forefrontal lobe which is where your your memory the part of the brain that stores your memory and they were going to have to drill a hole in my head to, to get rid of this wow. thing which which had a 75% success rate, but 25% chance of giving you brain damage. We didn't like those odds on the dice. No, roll. no, 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 of course. I don't want to get into it all, but to cut a long story short, I got put on an experimental drug and eventually I came out of intensive care and this, this and this. And it left me with some pretty difficult health issues. I I can't hold a driving license. I have issues with depth perception. I get fatigue. I can't concentrate for long periods of time, all this kind of stuff. But I, I, get, I sort of get my own way around all those things. But one of the things that happened is that, that there's a big chunk of my memory that's missing. And that's mainly from sort of 19, mid, mid 90s until about mid 2000s. I have almost no memory of oh, really? that time. I can yeah. look at brochures of things that I did around that time and I'll get little flashes. But before that, happened i could remember everything at least i think i could because i can remember everything i can remember a lot of stuff from my childhood in vivid detail but i've got one i've got a brochure for one play in my portfolio down there that i can't even remember directing that's incredible so there's a big chunk so to talk about that time period is probably a bit useless because i I won't go to recall much it's okay no i I mean and also lance it's actually incredible that you're still writing and doing all this amazing (laughs) stuff considering what you just talked about and like you know it's a credit to you as well for not for not letting that hold you back so thank you for for sharing for sharing all that stuff you just develop mechanisms for overcoming these things and, you know, you have your own routine and as long as you've got those things in place, you're okay. But, you know, you have to work a certain way and I have terrible trouble sleeping and um, I have really bad insomnia and I've had it for decades now and it comes and goes. I'll, I'll go through periods where it's absolutely atrocious. Like, I, you know, I can go for four weeks not going to bed before 4 or 5 a.m., four weeks on the trot I, I, you know and when it's really bad I don't sleep for like three days in a row but I also can't really function mm. so you know it's could never hold a nine-to-five job so I have to kind of this is writing suits me because I can do it when I can do it it's flexible yeah it's flexible for your life and stuff directing jobs tend to be in and out quite quickly mm-hmm. so you know you can and you get into a rhythm and you know, I probably couldn't do something for a really long period of time. I don't think I would cope with it. Well, we don't we don't have to touch on that period of your life too much, obviously. But I, I thought I just would acknowledge your your one of your first big plays, which is Waiting for Hillsborough, which was one of your first. But was I don't know if you would say, but it's one of you know maybe your big break in the sense that like you was your first big award, wasn't it? And that and that was yeah. all about the Hillsborough disaster and stuff, which is yeah, we did it twice. 
Once in London, once in Liverpool, slightly different cast. Some of the cast were in both productions. And I'm still in touch with Kiki Kendrick, who was in both productions. Uh, that was the first play that I wrote, first play that I put on and got me my first award. And I've got to sort of tip my hat to Jimmy McGovern, who wrote the Hillsborough film, and also Nicola Schindler from Red Productions, who's an amazing, well, probably one of the most amazing and prolific producers in the UK. She's got an amazing body of work. She's always producing, I think, good quality television shows. And I mean, not everything they do is a factual drama documentary, but, but they do really good stuff. And, you know, I saw that movie and I was a southerner at the time of the football disaster and I had been to the, the cinema that day, <laughs> funnily enough. And I came in and my mum was not hysterical, but, but a bit emotional ones. oh all these people have died at this football game and and it was the Thatcher era and it, we were all being taught down in the south that kind of football was just for football hooligans that's literally that was all you associated football with those days if you were my age it was like football was for football hooligans I didn't have any friends who went to football matches I had friends who supported teams yeah but no one went to football matches back then because it was just it was just considered to be this sort of hooligan 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 thing and that was all the media you know the hooligan element of football even at its height was always quite small they exaggerated it to be it was a massively exaggerated it was a small hardcore element and their idea of a fun Saturday was to go and watch the game and have a bit of a ruck afterwards. And even then, you know, the hardcore boys that, that took part in that didn't want to kill anybody. Yeah, a lot of it was yeah, almost fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was more of a. Uh, and I mean, I'm, listen, I'm not defending it. It's not my idea of a good Saturday night now. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but by the time of the Hillsborough football disaster, which was '89, hooliganism had largely died out. It was more the early '80s, and the police were dishing out heavy sentences. So the whole narrative of Thatcher and her government to kind of right from day one, they labelled the disaster. They knew the police had fucked up, and they from day one it was right. Let's blame it on the fans. And that blame it on the fans thing permeated into the media very quickly, and all the Southern papers, you know, carried all those stories. And unfortunately, I bought into all that, and I, I felt so disgusted with myself, even though I was only a teenager when all that happened. I just thought I have to, for my own conscience, I have to rectify this. So I wrote a play about two families waiting for news on the day. It was a very different take on the whole thing. And through that, I explored a number of things that had happened. And I intercut that with quotes from the, the Taylor report. And yeah, it seemed to go down well. And uh, I think actually we might do that as a play um, online sometime in the near future with the outcast, because I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah, I'll look I'm, I'm wondering that. if that I've actually good. got the original manuscript. I, I need to see if I've still got it. I don't know if I, that's one of the few plays I don't have on my computer. Mm. So um, so that's yeah, that's how the Hillsborough thing well, that's that's amazing, and I I love the like the reason behind why you wrote that as well. I think that's very interesting. Well, so you did that, and that's that was what year did that? Do you know what year that that all was? I think it was. I know that the year I moved back to London was ninety seven, right? And I know that it was the first play that I did. So I know well, that would have been at the Jacks. Was that the Jackson Lane Theatre stuff? Yeah, and I kind of sort of became the writer in residence there. And yeah, I was re writer in residence there for about four or five years or something. Oh, yeah. A uh, little theatre near me, and it was it was great. That, that's where I met Graham Fletcher Cook. That's where I met Dickon Tolson, who um, co-runs the uh, the Outcast with me. And, and Graham ran 
Timber Theatre, which was an improvisation drop-in workshop. And The Outcast is exactly the same thing. It's, it's a drop-in workshop for actors. We run it online. And actually, we, we do acting. We've worked out how to run our classes online now. And we do a, work, a script work acting class about every other week. We do about two of them a month. And, and they're only a maximum of 12 people. And they're great because oh, wow. they're only £10 each. They're really super cheap because we know no one's got any money. Yeah, that so, and that's that. how much our dropping class used to be for people to come in person. And when we can start the class up again, that's how much it will be. And we yeah. pride ourselves on not having any favoritism with our acting class. We've both been to classes where you get cliques and favorites with the teacher and this, that, and the other. And some people seem to get more time than other students. And we, we were very adamant from day one that we were not going to tolerate that. Yeah, We make sure the online classes, everybody gets an equal amount of time. They're maximum 12 people because you can't have more than 12 on an online class. And then we do them. And then in person, it's maximum 24. So in person, you can have a larger group, obviously. Yeah. And then we were, we were just moving towards doing some bigger classes on the weekends. We were going to do one a month on a Saturday, which was going to be a bit bigger. And we were going to do an online, we were going to do a stage production. We were, we were gearing up to do Christmas Carol with Trump as Scrooge. Oh, wow. That was going to be our <laughs> stage production. And then, of course, lockdown happened. And so all of that didn't, didn't happen. And actually, the, the first play we did as the outcast was Borderlands. I'm probably jumping through your timeline a bit. Oh, I don't worry at all. Yeah. That was about immigration. We just got together. That's uh, six of the cast. There's my good friend Tony Fadil oh. in the middle there looking grumpy with Fiona. <laughs> and uh, it was a really great cast. And it was set in immigration. And the audience decided what happened to the woman at the end, whether she would be detained or whether she would be released. Yeah, and uh, you know we always try and make our, our work look really good even though we're unfunded and, and you know this was a fringe production so you know grind to the elbow everyone everyone gets involved and mucks in we always try and make our stuff look really good so that it benefits everybody who's working on it because yeah. doing creative work is all well and good but you want it to be your best foot forward and I always try and push people and get the best out of them that I can yeah. And I was like, our stuff to look as good. It's always quite ambitious what we do. We're doing Kent State next, and we, we can come on to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've got a note of that, don't worry. So is the outcast, yeah, so, we'll, just we'll, since we're talking about that now, is, is that was is that aimed at mostly yeah. young people, or is it from all age groups you sort of encouraged to come to the Oh, outcast? God, no. No, it's, um, it, it is over 18s. We, we, we're looking at doing a children's one because we've had various people get in touch with us. My son, daughter wants to get involved, and they're kind of... 10 12 but a lot of my scripts tackle sort of adult themes social injustice this kind of quite strong material so it's not really suitable for them but no the outcasts okay so principally at the forefront of the outcast dick and tolson and myself it's a drop-in acting class that's the first thing it is and the idea is it's open to anyone of any skill level whether you just want to do a bit of acting for fun, whether you're a seasoned veteran actor who's been on EastEnders for 20 years, you can just come along to either one of the online sessions or when we're in person, it's in Old Street, near Old Street, Monday nights, and and you can come along and just take part. And our online lessons are Monday night, and you can find us on Facebook. Just go to the Outcast Creative Facebook page, drop us an inbox there and one of us will get back to you. And we do table reads online as well, just for fun, which are for free. Anyone can take part in them. And then 
if you want to book, you book to come on an acting workshop. And I, I run script writing workshops as well. Not technically part of the Outcast, but it's all under the same umbrella. They're, they're on Sunday afternoons. Uh, it's all just self-sustaining at the moment, you know, because to run the Outcast Zoom account and whatever, with any money we get, we spend on that kind of thing. Which um, is amazing. And like, you know, I mean, the arts is such a... It's a very tough industry to, you know, work in professionally. And I think it's very important to have things like the outcasts and people there to help you out and sort of be part of a bigger community. It's something we've been trying to build that just get a real job as well. So I have a lot of respect for that. It's definitely um, with the acting workshop, we've got a really good hardcore pool of regulars, very talented people, very eclectic bunch of people from all walks of life and age, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, all that. I find with a group that's that mixed that sometimes, you know, you'll get people that will come in and do a class who've never done any acting before in their life. And you've got a seasoned veteran in the the thing. And I'll put the two of them in a scene together. And it's amazing to see what happens. And sometimes, you know, these old boys and girls will come up to us and go, bloody hell, that lad's good, isn't he? I, I, I learned a few things from him in that scene. And it's just, that's how you find kind of natural talent, people that have just got the knack for it. Definitely. Hello, it's Jamie and Elliot here. I hope you're enjoying today's episode of Just Get A Real Job. I just wanted to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, word of mouth is the best way for us to grow. So please, if you can, share us on social media, tell your friends and family to listen. You can also support us by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your help. So anything you can do to help us grow this project is very much appreciated. We do appreciate your support as always. And if you would like to contribute or donate to our podcast, we also have a Patreon page where you could donate as little or as much as you wish. You can access this by going to www patreon.com slash just get a real job so thank you very much again for all your support and you can also find a link to the patreon page in the show notes but anyway now back to today's show well lance i thought we'd also sort of move forward a bit in time and talk about your feature film the journey Uh, would you mind talking telling us a bit about that that was a low budget indie feature film still hasn't been officially released but we're looking at that happening fairly soon it's basically about people dealing with grief it's about three men who travel to greece simultaneously each of them has lost somebody and they're all dealing with grief and they're all dealing with it quite differently what they've got in common is not just the grief itself but they've all made plans for this trip to be their last so they're they're all planning on not coming back and that this is loosely based on a true story uh, about the time that i very spontaneously Went to Greece after my good friend Angela Thomas died very suddenly. And uh, I ended up going to Greece on the advice of a stranger in a chat room on the internet, which is a bizarre story of itself. And that sort of formed the basis for this storyline. Yeah, so these three guys go there and then things happen. And obviously um, they they do come back, you know. Uh, I think the sort of core message of the film is about how even when you're going through something really bad, best part of who you are can still help and support someone else. Yeah. And a prime example of that actually is, is a friend of mine has just lost their mother just this last week. And even on some of the days when I was having, I had a couple of days last week, which were not great. When I was having a tough time, I would still, you know, get on WhatsApp and, hey, just checking on you, make sure you're okay. You know, kind of leaving them an entertaining, silly message that probably would make them laugh and put a smile on their face. So the best part of who I am will still try and support someone else, even if I'm going through a hard time. I think think everyone's going through a hard time at the moment. So um, 
that was the, the sort of that's what the message of the journey was about. We we shot it all in Greece. We had an amazing amount of stuff that we blagged for free, including all of our hotels and wow. most of our transport, not the air, airfares, sadly, but we we blagged a lot of stuff for free. And just the, the, the filming of it itself was was an epic story. And um, the script was originally written for my best friend in the industry, Jason Fleming. We met each other. We met each other in the winter of 99 at a film screening of something called The Bunker. And he had done a film that was connected to something else that Dick and Tolson was, funnily enough, had a bit part in. Oh, really? And that was why I watched that film. And it was just a pure coincidence that I then went into town and then I went past that cinema and I saw the screening for this movie I just happened to go in and say do you have any tickets they did I went and watched it and one behold he was there with a load of the rest of the cast and as I was coming out of it he came rushing out the fire exit and we bumped into each other like literally physically <laughs> and that was how we met and I went oh my god you did that film with Dick and Tolson blah 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 yeah, 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 you're a friend of his. And that, that was kind of how we met. And I just said to him straight away, I want to write a script for you. And I, and I, I just said, I'm going to write a script for you, actually. And, and you know, and, and I said, and I'll do it for free. And, and he just looked at me and, and said, um, no, 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 no. If I can ever do anything for you, you call me. And he gave me his landline telephone. Oh, wow, that's so nice. Yeah, it was really lovely. And uh, it was a while, actually, before we met again after that. I think it was about six months maybe a year but then you know we worked together a few times we he's done a couple of voiceovers for me we've we've worked on a couple of projects together that haven't happened we've got a couple more in development right now in fact we were due to shoot this one where me and him because I like doing a bit of acting from time to time yeah. so anyone watching whoever needs an older actor to do a little cameo in their their first short film drop me a message I'm up for it and we always said we were going to do this short where we played brothers and I expanded that short into a feature film and we were due to shoot that just as lockdown happened so that which the working title for it is behind closed doors but I think we're changing it to keep it keeping it in the family is I think oh, it's brilliant. The yeah so and, and the journey was very much a present for him but the funny thing is is that he ended up not doing the role that he was written because it clashed with this big film shoot and he just had twins and we really it's a long story, but but he ended up still being in the film and uh, helped us out in all kinds of ways with getting it finished. And you know, yeah. So that was that's that's the journey of the journey. That's how the journey came, and it, it, it took two years to complete. And it, it was a lesson in filmmaking of itself. It was like going on a filmmaking course and having a feature film at the end of it. It wasn't the first <laughs> film that I'd made, but it was the first proper film, really, and the first yeah. one in digital technology so I, I did a couple of other features that were shot on video formats before oh, wow. 30 was and death comes from the touch of the funny man 30 i can remember almost nothing about because that's part of that time where i can't remember anything i know we filmed it but i can't i can't picture me on set mm -hmm. at all funny man also very much of that same time period i can I, there's a few little memories i've got about it but i can't really remember yeah, any detail yeah well, thanks for sharing the stuff about the journey, Lance. It's very interesting. I thought we'd talk about your lockdown now because this is a, this is actually incredible. And you, and you showed me before mm. we started recording the top of all the things. You, but you wrote over 30 things in lockdown, didn't you? 
30 plays. Yeah, 30 scripts. So people from the outcast, the core regulars that came to the class, were messaging me and Dickon and and they were all quite depressed. And so we started doing read I had, funnily enough, it was that Jason Fleming script. I had that behind closed doors. We were just about to shoot it. So I wanted to do a read through of it online. And not many people had Zoom at this point. So we did it on Skype and it worked to a degree, but Skype was really weird. It wasn't really geared up to having 20 people on a call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we would have a lot of people dropping out and, and some people you couldn't hear them properly. And so it was very, very hit and miss. Then we did that and we, we read a couple of other scripts and then we got hold of Zoom because somebody got hold of Zoom and we, we started doing it on Zoom. It's like, this is great. This yeah, is it just sort of came out of nowhere, Zoom, didn't it? Everyone suddenly was using it. So It had been around for a while, fun yeah, enough, yeah, yeah. But, but, but just for conferences. And I, I thought, why has no one thought of using this for <laughs> castings and table reads before? You know, yeah. because doing table reads was a real pain in the arse. You'd have to yeah. get a room in Central London and, well, you know, the last one we did, we didn't have aircon in there and it was... We have these little fans. Yeah. So hot, we're all melt. <laughs> I think, just think, yeah, Zoom is one of the, def- or, or just this sort of type of thing is definitely one of the most positive things to come out of the pandemic because as you yeah. say, like now, even when the COVID's finished and stuff, you don't have to rent a room to have these table reads. You can all do it from home easily on Zoom. And, you know, even for podcasting, like I started this podcast during lockdown, but I speak to a lot of podcasters who would never have dreamed of doing a remote recording in their life they always had to go to the person's house to record it whereas like this is so good for me because obviously you know i'm in scotland at the moment and i can speak to people like you and it's great to have that connection across the world as much as yeah. I, I am looking forward to doing some real life uh, podcasts eventually because i think Did you say you're in five are you in uh, five i'm from fife i'm in edinburgh at the moment uh, the accent you, you must know about the critical drinker right no i don't think i do okay look, remind me to talk about him at the end Okay, well, we can come back. It's we can talk off, about it's it. It's a bit off topic, but let's yeah. talk about him. I want to give him. I want to give him a bit of a plug as well. We'll come on to that at the end. We surprise for the listeners. Oh, sorry. Anyway, you're, but your plays in lockdown. You're sorry. You're talking about. I, I dug out some scripts and we started doing these table reads every Monday or Tuesday night. And then I wrote the pilot. I, I felt a bit enthused, and I, I I had plenty of older scripts, but I thought, oh, it'd be good to hear a new one. And I had written the pilot for this because this was always designed to be a, a TV show. Yeah. Diamonds in the Sky, and, and it's multi-narrative, and you follow those characters. So I wrote the pilot and got feedback on it from a friend of mine, Matthew Holmes, who's a director in Australia, and said to the outcast, okay, I've got this pilot, we're going to do it. I'm going to have sound effects and music on the on the table read for it, so just be aware there'll be some sound effects. You keep, you keep talking no matter what happens. So whenever there was gun battles, we had all these machine guns going off left and right. And we did the pilot, and uh, it's, it's a really... I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but it's a really good script with really good, interesting characters from all over the world. Big characters. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, that was great, Lance. That was great. So we're doing episode two next Monday. And I was like, um, yeah, of course we are. And I hadn't actually written episode two. So I straight away, I think after the Monday night read through, I got on the computer, started writing episode two. And of course, it's all there for me because I've got the book already. Yeah. So I think by the time we did episode two, I had already written three. Wow. And by the time we did three, I was on episode five. By the time we did five, I was on episode seven. And by the time we did seven, I was on episode 10 and I finished it. And we even read some of the episodes twice. And also I, ha- I would have the manuscript up on my screen 
And as I was hearing the dialogue being read out by our eclectic group of actors from the outcasts, I was rewriting dialogue if it didn't work. And I was also correcting mistakes and trimming stuff and just yeah. reordering some things. And it was a really good working process. And I thought, this is, this is great, this. So I started doing that with other scripts. And then I had some other scripts that I had, were in very early embryonic stages. And Ron Howard started running a script writing competition in conjunction with Impact. It was open to anyone in the world. And, and they had specific genre categories that you had to enter. So I entered that twice. So I wrote a couple of scripts for that as well. And then I had a play about the Magnificent Seven called Seven Magnificent Egos that needed a big rewrite. So we did a rewrite of that. We did a performance. Well, not we did a read through of that online. And we, we did that one. They're all on the back of the hoodie. I oh, brilliant. And, uh, yeah, there's loads. Yeah. We'll we, just... we did um, Heartbreak Hotel. And then Persecution, the trial of Colin Stagg, was a script I wrote in 2003. And, and we were reading that. And I thought this could work as a... I thought Zoom can work as a medium of performance, but we have to learn how to use that as actors, yeah. you know, with all these things like distance from the camera and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when to move for emphasis and that. And it's very different to performing in front of the camera because you, your stage is this box you, you know you're not on a set so we were sort of we started teaching our regulars how to to manipulate that and then I thought let's try performance and we ended up doing a five-part drama online which you can see on the YouTube channel Outcast Creative uh, called Persecution and that's the true story of what happened to Colin Stagg and um, we're doing another one which is going to start broadcasting in April. And that's about the civil trial that followed the shootings in Kent State, May 1970. And that's um, like a court case drama. So it lends itself quite well to this sort of radio play type Brilliant. style. Brilliant. And I think if you're doing anything, if you're performing anything on Zoom for the public, I think it has to, you have to write it so that, you know that it would work if someone could only hear it. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, to, to hear. Um, yeah. It's great that you can do things with the visuals, and we are going to do things with the visuals. And on Persecution, everybody was in costume and all this <laughs> kind of thing. But you want people to be able to play it and just have it on while they're doing the washing up. Yeah, so definitely. It and they don't necessarily need to watch it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of our remit. And the Kent State one that we're doing is, is partly based on well, certainly this is one of the main resources. This was written by uh, Joseph Cowell, oh, wow. who is the guy who was handled the court case. And the, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was I, I was, I mean, a lot of my work is about social injustice. And I, yeah. I, was, I despaired of what happened to not just the UK, but the world in 2020, even with pandemic aside. You know, the, the, the George Floyd murder, yeah. the BLM movement, and then people trying to marginalise that movement yeah, and, 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 and call it like a sort of a far left extreme radical group. Absolutely was not that at all. It was human beings saying, this is enough. Yeah, We're not going to let you murder people wearing that uniform. The, you know, the, the people that did that, they're no better than Nazi stormtroopers. And going around, you know, carrying out a public execution, basically. That's what that was. It was a public ex execution that happened to be filmed. Yeah. Now, if that hadn't been caught on camera and we were still in the age of, when you think back to Rodney King, 
you know, that was one of the few times someone with a big clunky video recorder <laughs> happened to catch something. This stuff's been going on for, well, since, you know, the days of slavery. And it, it, it's, it's got to stop. And they need to completely re- revamp and reevaluate how they conduct their training and their discipline of the of police. Of course. Yeah, it needs a total overhaul. But uh, well, well, Land, this seems like a, a good chance to sort of actually quickly, because one of my questions for you was going to just sort of about, you say, you know, a lot of your writing is very based in uh, social justice. So is, is that just like your main thing that's always driven you to write? Because most of your writing is very social justice based. Well, it's funny, I, I, I'm doing a, a couple of projects for a bunch of great guys called Tripod Productions, Jake, Joe and Ellie. And I just wrote this script for them called The Showdown of Fat Komodo, which is like Tremors meets Big Trouble in Little China, meets in mm-hmm. Vegas from Mars. <laughs> I wrote that script in two days, and that was one of the 30 scripts that I wrote last year. And I love writing it because I love that. I love those kind of B-movie, fun B-movie films, you know, popcorn movies. Yeah, and yeah. I pride myself on the fact that I can write in any genre. And Ellie, who's one of the tripod guys, came to me just last night and said, oh, I've got an idea for a script I, I, I'd love to, to work with you on. It's of a genre you haven't done before. And I thought, oh, great. Okay, yeah. what, what is it? And she said, well, you haven't written any kind of, you know, rom-com, female-led rom-coms. And I went, I have. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you just don't know about them. But I have done because I've done them for somebody else and there's been NDAs involved and that kind yeah. of thing. Or I've helped somebody else out with a script like that and, you know, maybe not to the degree that I felt I should have a writing credit or something. So... I pride myself on the fact that I will write in any genre and I like writing in any genre, but I'm not a big believer in politics, but I am a big believer in creating change through educating people and seeping into the public consciousness through the medium of performance. And I think the reason that Kent State is so relevant is because democracy everywhere in the world is under attack. You only need to look at what happened with the elections in Uganda, where the president incumbent Bobby Wine, he won by an absolute landslide. Yeah, yeah. And Mussolini is just sitting in there and, and, and he brought all these mercenaries in, the whole country's on lockdown, he arrested the guy. UK didn't comment about it and I could get into why that is, but let's not go there. So all of these things are happening all over the world still, amazingly. And, and Kent State happened in 1970 and we did the read-through of the script And the first thing all the actors said was, this was the original movie script that I wrote back in 2003. They said, my God, isn't it amazing how little everything's changed? Yeah, it's still so relevant today. Yeah, exactly. How little things have changed that we people are still having to protest to get democratic rights and people are still going out and shooting them and the rest of the world is, is doing nothing about it. And when you do nothing about it, you say it's okay for that stuff to happen. So I wrote the Kent State script in 2003. It was another one I wrote way back when. And we did the read through it. And I thought two things. I thought this could work as a radio play. And second, this is really relevant now. So maybe we should do this as our next public performance. And we're going to do a Shakespeare. The Outcasts are doing three online productions this year, although one of them may be on a stage if we can do theatre again. Fingers crossed. But we're doing Kent State, we're doing Henry V, we're doing a modern version of, well, we're doing a version of Henry V set in World War II. All right. Okay. Which, but yeah, we're going to do that. And then we're going to do a Christmas Carol with Trump as Scrooge. So really? those are the three outcast things. And this is all just out of us 
just getting together and saying let's do something because we don't want to be sitting on our ass doing nothing absolutely you know? and that's is very commendable and and i love that people are still working even in these dark times and it's amazing to see and there's such a the arts are still going strong and you know the arts are what i believe the arts are what's going to bring us all together after this and what have the power to do that and i i love what you said about you know using performance in a way to educate and and inspire change as well something i'm very passionate about so yeah i think so i mean it's you know it's one of the last kind of mediums left for us really and people did it have done it all throughout history just get a real job. well Lance, there's loads loads more i would love to ask you but i've got two more questions and then we'll talk about your thing at the end as well i've not forgotten about the five oh yeah the critical um, drink roll give yeah. him a shout but we ask him that comes on the podcast and i'm sure you have a good answer for this especially you know being in the industry for so long but what is the worst part of them job you'd ever had to work to sort of support your craft as an artist you don't have to name the company if you don't want to don't worry <laughs> The worst experiences I've had in the industry have not been the jobs that I've had to do in order to get by, even though some of those have been a bit horrible. Yeah. Um, the worst thing experiences I've had in the industry is when I've placed my trust in somebody else to do something for me on a production and that trust was badly placed. Yeah. And I made a poor judgment about that person. And my advice to people is... Because working in this industry is all about working with other people. The only job that you have to do solo is writing. And that's why I excel at that because I'm my, my, my own boss and beholden to nobody. And I, I race along like a rocket. But when you're on set, you've got to work with a multitude of different personalities and manage different people. And I would say when it comes to working with crew and when it comes to working with actors and producers, always trust your gut. If your gut is telling you something is wrong, if your gut is telling you, mm, I don't know, but maybe give them a chance, go with your first gut instinct, because 95% of the time, your first gut instinct is always right. And the, the, the few occasions where I've gone the other way, I've regretted it. So yeah. trust your instincts and try to be careful where you make your choices and who you place your trust with. Brilliant. Well, you'd answered the sort of last question we ask about advice anyway, very well there. So... Thank you what, for that what, too. What, so, what advice think, would I give to people coming yeah. up? Actually, I've got a different answer well, for that. Well, that's fine. You um, can give us that too. Because um, I've been asked that question a lot. Mm. I, my answer to, that, to people coming up in the industry, whether they're an actor, whether you're a writer, you know, you want to be a writer or a director, is constantly be proactive. Yeah. No one in this industry is going to give you anything. Yeah. And a friend of mine, Chris Jones, has this great phrase about how when you say the industry and you're trying to get into the industry and you feel you're not where you want, you, you kind of visualise the industry as being this kind of magical place, a bit like the, the Wizard of Oz, you know, at the end of the yellow brick road and it's kind of over the hill, yeah. right? As soon as you start writing, as soon as you go on an acting course, as soon as you commit to being an actor, as soon as you commit, you go and start making your first short film with Peanuts, whatever, you are the industry, you're in it. Yeah. You are the industry. You have made the decision to become part of the creative industry and you're in the industry. Now, you might not be where you want to be, which is working for Channel 4 or, or, I don't know, being a director on EastEnders or being on EastEnders as, a, as an actor. You may have your goals within the industry. But once you have crossed the threshold and made the decision to be in the industry, you're in it. You're in the industry. So don't ever talk about yourself as being far removed from it. You're in the industry. Be proactive. 
make your you can make short films on an iPhone. When you're not being commissioned to write something, you can still write. You can still write your plays. You can you know allocate and whatever you're doing to get by, allocate a chunk of time every week, whether that's Sunday afternoon, whether it's one night a week, four hours where you're going to turn off your phone, you're not going to have YouTube on, and you're going to do four hours of work on nothing but your own creative stuff, whether that's improving your showreel, writing yourself a monologue, writing your script, whatever it is, can make, that's a small commitment per week. It's a bit like somebody saying, I'm going to commit to going to the gym. It's the exact same, absolutely. Three times a week. Make that commitment. Be hard on yourself. Tell someone else about it so they're hard on you as well because you must be proactive because if you're not being proactive, I can tell you now somebody else out there is being as proactive as you, if not more so, and they're going to take that job that you want. You can't procrastinate. Absolutely. No, Lance, that's great advice, and it's such a common answer for people being proactive, and it's so true. And I love that thing you said about the industry because I'm so guilty of thinking – you know, I'm not in the industry, the industry is here, you know, I'm just, and that's so easy for people in my position to sort of be scared by that. So I love that thing you said about just, you're you're in it now and don't ever let anybody tell you where you're at in it either, because you decide that, not them. They don't don't make that decision. There was a great quote from a writer called William Goldman, who's one of the best screenwriters in Hollywood history. I've got one of his books on my shelf, actually. Right. Nobody knows anything, right? It's I think that's all on my shelf. Just over yeah, there. it's a good book. And that's true. No, the, the bottom line is no one knows which script or which idea is going to be the next big seller. No one knows whether that actor in the class or that actor in the class is actually going to be the one who's got the, the next career of Tom Hardy. So you don't let other people tell you where you are or where you fit. You decide that for yourself. And yeah, I, and now I should give Critical Drinker a plug. Yes, that's what I was about to ask you. We need to wrap the podcast up with that, definitely. So about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, a guy called Will Jordan, who, like myself, is a a sort of indie novelist, and he writes a very good... I put them in the same category as sort of Jason Bourne thriller type. So if you like those kind of books, he does a series of books called the Ryan Drake series. Look them up on Amazon. They're very good. I've taken it with that. The, I've just bought the first one, Ryan Drake. Right. And the first book is called Redemption. And he is, he's a lover of film. And me and him are like two peas in a pod. We <laughs> think about film and story and script writing and characters and character arcs and character beats exactly the same way. I have often thought long and hard about doing a film review show because I watch about two films a day. I never go to sleep before I finish watching two movies or two episodes of a show. And I've seen so many films from everything going back right to the 50s to the present day. And I've often thought about doing a film review thing, but I don't have the time. But there's a couple of them that I subscribe to on on YouTube. And he has a podcast, I guess you'd call it, and it's called The Critical Drinker, and he plays an exaggerated version of himself, which is a drunken Scotsman who likes to drink lots of booze. (laughs) So in the same way that Red Letter Media, if you know them, they're the other guys I follow. They do fantastic reviews of things. He plays a kind of exaggerated version of himself, and he does these reviews, and he deconstructs stuff. And he doesn't just go on and and bash things. He, He talks about stuff... 
he really likes. He did a great one about why Die Hard is one of the best movies ever written. And by the way, I took 22 people to see that for my birthday to the very first screening of it ever. Oh, wow. wow. December the 1st, 1988, London Film Festival. That was the very (laughs) first screening of Die Hard in the UK. Nobody knew what it was. I recognise the name now, actually, now now that you'd said the podcast thing. Yeah, Will Jordan. So just to show you how popular he is, he'd never done this before. And within a year and a half, I can tell you now, he's got... I can't know how many subscribers he's got, but it's a lot. And, you know, the sort of figures that you would die to have. Oh, I would really would die to have. And, and, and he's really good at just pointing out just basic screenwriting mechanics. And um, I think when you watch his podcasts, I find them incredibly educational. I, I consider myself a very capable screenwriter, but I, I love hearing his commentary on, on film and television uh, stuff that I like to watch, and he's spot on, Brilliant. 100% spot on. So I've got to give him a big plug. So I wanted right. to do that. Check Definitely. him out, Critical Drinker, YouTube. Really amazing guy. Brilliant. Well, Lance, thank you very much for the converse- for this conversation. I really enjoyed chatting to you. To a lot of great insights. It's yeah. incredible how much you'd written, and it's and I'm, thank- I'm very appreciative of how open you'd been about your struggles and things as well. I think it's great for the listeners to hear, and it's you know very inspiring. Oh, so thanks for that. I think we we all go through them. I, I haven't talked about them in anywhere as much detail as I would dare, but but yeah. I think I know everybody's always looking for the next hot young thing when it comes to writers and stuff. Mm. But but one of the reasons I can approach any genre and I feel I can slip into any shoes is I've climbed such a difficult mountain. Yeah. In life. I just sort of look back to things and I pull stuff out from where I've been emotionally and that's quite a big journey to pick from. Yeah, but that's a good thing um, when it comes when it comes to writing. It's yeah, good. absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time, Lance. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Just Get a Real Job. I'd like to thank Lance once again for chatting to us. I really appreciate him giving us his time. There are links to some of Lance's work in the show notes, including his most recent novels. There's also a link to The Outcast, which of course Lance talked about in today's episode. And they have a production, 13 Seconds in Kent State, coming up this coming weekend on YouTube. So you can make sure to go and check that out as well. And as always, if you are enjoying the podcast, a number of things you can do to help us continue to grow. And one of them is Five Star Review on apple podcasts that really helps us to be seen another thing you can do is if you can afford to is by donating to our patreon page we appreciate not everyone can afford to do this it's a really difficult time but if you can afford to even donate the price of a cup of coffee the price of a pint per month to our podcast that would be very much appreciated and all the money we make goes back into the upkeep of the podcast and lastly the most important thing you can do is just word of mouth spreading the words telling friends and family to listen sharing us on social media just letting people know who we are and helping us to get more listeners but anyway thank you very very much to everyone for listening to today's episode of just get a real job and until next time stay safe folks just get a real job